0: a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a okay. Hey guys, before I share this next conversation, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have continued to support the podcast with your monthly donations. And for anyone who also wants to support it, it's really easy. All you do is go to littleknownfactspodcast.com and you'll see that there's a contributions page when you look at the homepage menu. And it explains how to donate. And when I say no donation is too small, I really mean it. Even a dollar a month will make a huge difference in my being able to share these episodes with you every week. So thank you to those who have already given. Thank you in advance to those who might contribute in the future. And without further ado, here's the next episode of Little Known Facts. Enjoy little-known fact about my guest today, his partnership with Edswick is the longest living working partnership in Hollywood. Welcome, Marshall Herskovitz, to the podcast. Where do I find you this morning?
2: I am in my house uh, near Calabasas, which is outside of Los Angeles.
0: Well, because I have seen the occasional Kardashian episodes, I know where that is.
2: (laughs) Yes, well, I live in a different part of Calabasas from them. Uh, Where I live is sort of out in the country. So,
0: Oh, wow. uh, How beautiful.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's very pretty here. It's very much outside the city. So
0: Great. I just want to ask before we start recording, I'm not going to make you slate your name, but do you pronounce it? I want to make sure I have it right. Herskovitz or Herskovitz?
2: Herskovitz. No H. Herskovitz.
0: Okay, that's what I thought. And then I've been watching a million interviews with you, and on occasion someone says Hershkovitz and you've been very polite (laughs) and not... Corrected them, so I just wanted to make sure we're a hundred people getting it wrong and two right, or vice versa. So now I got it.
2: It's been mangled my entire life. I don't even pay attention anymore.
0: All right. Well, let's start with that. Um, So first of all, thank you for being here. Um, It's so great to just hear voices and talk to people who don't live with me in my apartment. So I'm
2: (laughs) thrilled. I'm with you um,
0: to have human contact. Are you? um, Are you just to get a little? quarantining conversation out of the way. Are you with family? Are you by yourself? Are you able to um, be in the great outdoors a a, a, a lot because of your description of where you are?
2: Uh, Yes, I am very, very lucky. I live in a beautiful area uh, that is out in the country. If such a thing exists within Los Angeles County, uh, we can walk outside. There are a lot of animals. I am here with my wife. We're actually getting along, you know. <laughs> so um, as as quarantines go, I've had it very easy. So um, I'm not going to complain.
0: Right. And you feel well, which is a tremendous, tremendous thing. And I knock wood whenever I say that because I know... Everything can change on a dime, but we're going to stay with today and go backwards and not worry about the future for a moment. Although many fans, myself included, and I talked um, a lot about this with Tim Busfield, the idea that there was going to be um, a reunion show or a redux of sorts of 30-something. Busfield was telling me that literally you guys were about to go into production When the shutdown happened, were you already here on the East coast getting ready to shoot or, or were you not yet here?
2: Oh no, we were there. We were in New Jersey. I was staying in lower Manhattan and um, I'm trying to remember which week it was. I think it was the, the week of the, of March uh, 10th. I I literally trying to remember time. You know, isn't it weird how time takes on this weird cast lately? Um, But um, it was the week when everyone realized it was getting really bad in New York. And, and
0: had, had Cuomo made the decision to shut down at this no, point large venues? No, it was venues? before. No. It was okay. before.
2: It was, in fact, um, it, I, it, was, it was the week when Newsom shut down California and Cuomo had not yet shut down New York. And as the week went on, you know, I started saying to the people on the production, We have to shut this down. And it's not like they disagreed. It's just that there was such an investment. And I don't mean just monetarily, but emotionally in getting this thing going. I think it was very hard for people just to to say, oh, we're just going to stop doing this right now. And I remember coming in the Monday of that week saying, we need to shut this down. And people saying, no, let's wait. Let's see. And in fact, it didn't get shut down until the Friday of that week. But I was convinced all week that we had to go down. Um, right. and, uh, it was very wrenching and difficult, but at the same time, you know, it, 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 there is this way in which reality takes over finally and, and, and people get it and, and New York was getting it then. And, and, you know, we saw that, that life as we knew it could not continue.
0: Had, uh, had a fair amount of your cast already, come to New York did you hire mostly New York actors or were people coming in from all over the place to be on the show
2: uh everyone was there most of the people were from LA and they had all been there um uh the only person who wasn't there yet was Ken Olin who um had was finishing work in Los Angeles on This Is Us so he hadn't been able to come in yet and in fact When we shut down on Friday, he was on a plane to New York before he got the news that we shut down. So he actually flew to New York and learned that we had shut down. So
0: and and turned around. uh,
2: I don't know because I think they have a place in New York. I don't know if they went out to Long Island. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I think that's where they went. So, (laughs) but but we were frantically trying to reach him before he got on the plane, but we missed him. So.
0: Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I I want to go back because to um, to people of my generation and to so many people, you and your partner, Ed Zwick, really were the um, inventors of so many generational touchstones with so many of the things you created together early on for television. And then you did it again with Nashville, um, more recently, writing for and and to an audience that really got so invested um, in the lives and deaths of some of the characters that you were involved in writing, and I really want to go back to one of like the most successful Hollywood love stories in existence, which is you and your partner Ed Zwick, which has <laughs> been a decades long um partnership at this point we are um, actually
2: we're actually the longest living partnership in hollywood right now that uh, is incredible yeah it is pretty wild
0: <laughs> um yeah i mean when when people hear your names i mean there are you know there's nickels in may there are a lot of really um incredible couples that were not romantically involved who who were able to kind of create this kind of content that is so long-lasting um, oh, thank you. You guys met at AFI?
2: Yes. So
0: exactly. b- before you got to film school, were you a kid who was always observing and writing things down? Like when did your own love of making content uh, for others, whether, I mean, you're a director and a producer as well, and we're going to talk about all of that, but was this something that began really early for you?
2: That's a really good question. Yeah, it began very early. I, I, I think um, if you talk to most writers, uh, before they knew they were writers, they knew they were alienated in some way. They knew uh-huh. that they were outsiders somehow. They knew that they were observers of the world. Um, and that's certainly how I felt my entire childhood. And
0: Can you talk a little bit about why or what the circumstances were?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think... First of all, some of it is mysterious. I think some of it is um, just how a person's consciousness works. You know, some people sort of are immersed in their lives, especially as children, and some people perceive some disconnection between themselves and the people around them. And that could be for any number of reasons. I think in my case, I was an extremely sensitive child. I mean, um, there are pictures of me when I'm, two and three years old with the family and my daughter who's now in her thirties looks at them and, and just goes, Oh my God, look at that little boy. It's like, you can see how lost and confused I was even as a two and a three year old, because I couldn't really understand what was going on around me. Maybe because my, I was asking too many questions for someone that age. Do you know what I mean? I, you're, you're not necessarily supposed to be aware of all the dynamics between the people and, and all of that. I think I was just overwhelmed. So from a very young age, I just felt in some way disconnected from everything around me. And And when you're disconnected from it, you observe it and you try to understand it. So it was natural for me to start writing, which I think I did in eighth grade. I think I wrote my first short story in eighth grade. And um, I think I started to see myself as a writer at some point around that time. Um, I don't know if I imagined that that would be my career, but I, I, I knew that I loved to write and I, and I continued to do that in high school.
0: So I have an eighth grader. Of course, we're all home in another room right now doing some kind of humanities writing project. So I can picture exactly what an eighth grader looks like. Um, did you have a bar mitzvah? Did you grow up in like a, a traditional Jewish household?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes, we were. Um, my grandfather was president of the synagogue. Uh, we were it was we were conservative Jews and. Um, we were we weren't kosher, so we were, you know, I would say not as observant as some. But um, there was a period of time, actually, um, when my grandfather died, my father's father, that my father decided that he wanted to go um, and, um, and 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 um, go to the synagogue every day and pray for a year. He wanted to he wanted we to do that for his father and say Kaddish, right. And, I went with him a lot and I became somewhat religious during that year. I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I think that's a very common age when people sort of feel a religious calling. Um, The thing is though, that it had no real meaning for me. In other words, it was, it was, it was very emotional. It it just had to do with some connection to the past and these older men and what it meant to be a man, Uh, you know, The problem with being Jewish is unless you understand Hebrew, you have no clue what these prayers are. And then when you read them in English, half the time, they're just sort of repetitive things. God is great. We love you, God. You know, you don't really know what you're praying about. And so there's a mysterious quality when you're growing up Jewish to what the hell the whole thing's about. And, um, you know, I I certainly felt that. But I was bar mitzvahed and... I'm one of the few people who actually defends the whole idea of having a boy or a girl go through that process. I think it's been utterly um degraded over the years and, and made into something very materialistic. But I can tell you that at the heart of it, this notion that you become an adult on that day um was very profound for me because on that day the people in the synagogue treated me differently. They treated me like I was a grown-up. It was so marked. And I'm talking about these old guys, you know, who didn't even know me that well, but they talked to me with deference. They, it, I wasn't a kid. They were. It was like this amazing moment where all of a sudden you're treated as an equal, even though you're 13 years old. And I found that really profound and really affected me, and really, in some way. Made me want to be a grown-up man, uh, which is something I'd never thought of before that day.
0: That's so fascinating. Do you remember any details of the day in terms of like, do you remember your speech, or were you really nervous about it? Were you a kid who liked to perform, or was being in front of like, you grew up in Philly, or yeah. or yeah. okay,
2: yeah,
0: um, in a suburb, or was was it an urban upbringing, or a more suburban?
2: I I grew up in the suburbs. And by the way, you're you're bringing up a very interesting point, which was uh, I was a very anxious child. I was incredibly nervous about my bar mitzvah, of course. And because my grandfather was the president, they gave me this huge Torah portion. I mean, I spent months and months and months studying it. And I was terrified, just terrified. And when I went up, And started to do it within about three seconds, everything changed. And that was the moment when I realized that I like to perform, which Mm -hmm. I still do. And I I would have gladly become an actor if if life had taken me in that direction. Because I love performing. I love public speaking. And I discovered it all in that moment. And it was such a shock. It was so unexpected. But, you know, I kind of stood there and I looked at everyone And I just felt like, oh, I own this place. This is mine. I had no idea I was going to have that feeling. And I completely calmed down. And I, you know, this voice came out of me that was utterly confident and had no idea. So that was another profound part of that day.
0: I'm so glad I happened to see a matchbook from my son's bar mitzvah. A few months ago, I don't know, (laughs) just opened up this whole visual stimulus is really important, especially when you can't see the person that you're talking to. That is so remarkable. Um, Okay, so you realize that you're once you're up in front of people, it feels great. And that is how so many people find um, a community and sort of um, a liberation from their anxiety. Yeah. and enter the world of the arts, right? Like it's such yeah. a common story in front of that. Did you start doing school plays?
2: I did later. I did in, in junior high school. I started out wanting to be a visual artist. I was very good at drawing as a child, mm-hmm. really good, and thought that I was going to be, at first, like when I was you know, in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I thought I was going to be a painter. Um, and I became frustrated with myself because... I just reached a level of development I couldn't get past. And of course I didn't have any real teachers to help me. And um, you know, in some ways I would have been happier had I been able to continue with visual arts, because I think that's a big part of my, personality, um, I'm sort of a right brain person more than a left brain person. So, Are
0: you someone who makes really beautiful storyboards because you have that ability to kind of draw in that way when you were first starting out and people still did that by hand?
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I sometimes make storyboards, but only with a gun to my head. I just don't <laughs> like doing them. That's all. Well, it's but a lot when of I work. have to do them, I can do them. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: So <laughs> when did... Um, so I assume you didn't grow up well I don't want to assume were, were there cast recordings playing in your house and and a lot of like love of art and culture
2: Oh totally my parents Yeah, yeah this is a this was a classic sort of mid-century you know sort of second generation Jewish family um
0: So your parents you were know, very liberal
2: very artistic What's that?
0: Your parents were born in America
2: Yeah Yes. And were
0: your grandparents My grandparents
2: were born in the old country. Okay. And they they all had come over around 1910 on both sides of the family, interestingly. And um, yes, my parents were born here. And, um, you know, they were very aspirational, but very, you know, there was this sort of really strong humanistic, artistic um, sensibility in American Jews at that time, that that was sort of what you're here for was to bring sort of um, truth and beauty and artistic sensibility to the world, and and that was inculcated from a very very early age.
0: So, would you go see theater in Philadelphia? Would you come into New York to see Broadway?
2: Not New York, um, but yes, um, yes, we went to theater. Um, I was packed off downtown to go to concerts, which caused me unbelievable anxiety as a child because I just wasn't prepared to do that on my own. But, you know, I had to be edified in that way. Um, And any artistic thoughts or expressions were encouraged, of course. And my father was a sort of amateur painter and my mother had done sculpture when she was young. So, yes, the, the arts were incredibly important in the family.
0: Wow. Okay. So when it's time to go to college, I I see that you went to Brandeis. Was there a specific program at that school that was already arts-based? And was your family supportive of you pursuing a life in the arts?
2: Um, They were, well, okay, a lot of questions there, interesting ones. Um, I went to Brandeis because I didn't get into the other places I wanted to go. (laughs) In fact, when I was at Brandeis, the nickname for Brandeis was brand X because every single person at Brandeis had been rejected at Harvard. Okay. Um, And uh, my brother had gone to Harvard. And so I felt absolutely like the failure of the family because I didn't get into Harvard. Um, It all
0: worked out, didn't it, my friend?
2: But here are several interesting things about that. First of all, (laughs) I'm dating myself, but this was 1969. Uh And in 1968, there was an uprising at Brandeis where uh, some of the black students took over one of the buildings on campus and a couple of them had rifles. Mm -hmm. And this made national news. And Angela Davis was a professor there. And Brandeis took on this reputation as being this extremely radical university. And what people didn't know was, and I didn't know at the time, was that Brandeis, unlike many universities, did not have an endowment. Brandeis existed because of the largesse of a fairly small group of very successful Immigrant Jewish businessmen who had made a lot of money and decided that there needed to be a Jewish funded university, just like there were Catholic funded universities and other sorts of, you know, religious based universities. Didn't mean you have to be Jewish or Catholic to go to them. It's just that they were that that was their basis. And so they were very proud of Brandeis and they were very concerned that it continued to exist. And this idea that Brandeis had become this radical place was extremely disturbing to these donors, most of whom were fairly politically conservative. Right. So when I applied to Brandeis in 1969, I was put on the waiting list, even though in those days, unlike now, you could pretty much tell whether you were going to get into a school or not based on your scores and things you did. It wasn't as crazed as it is today. And You know, it seemed like I should have gotten in. And the fact that I was put on the waiting list was like, okay, weird. So my grandfather, who was big in the sort of, you know, Jewish community in Philadelphia, happened to know a guy who was on the board of trustees of Brandeis. And he called the guy and said, Can you find out what happened to my grandson? And the guy called him back and said, They're concerned that he's too radical. Uh, which was pretty amusing because I was so not radical. I I was I was not a political person in high school. I was sort of a uh, follower of Kurt Vonnegut. I just saw thought everything was was absurd, you know. Um, but I had signed a petition for a student bill of rights in my senior year of high school. So apparently that made me a, a radical.
0: And and in their research, they had uncovered this document.
2: Yeah. Yes. And so I had to go and have a, an interview with this you know, guy in Philadelphia. I don't remember his name. I don't remember what he looks like. I just remember this ornate office going in, having to wear a tie and having to explain to him that I was a perfectly normal, nice Jewish boy who was not going to rip up the campus. Right. And uh, a week later, I got in. So, um, you know... And and um, and by the way, when I went there, the first night there was a dinner for all the incoming freshmen, and the president of the university uh, made a speech, and he started out with what he uh, pretended was a joke when he said, you know, the head of the board of trustees said to me – I can't remember what his name was, but it said to me this year when we were going over the applications, he said, Bill, get me 600 quiet ones. And everyone left. And I realized that was actually what he was told. <laughs> so at any rate, I made it in.
0: You did. You were one of the quiet ones. Yeah. That could yeah. be your, your memoir title.
2: <laughs> exactly. Um, the quiet one of the ones. quiet ones. Yeah. Yes.
0: So when did this love and understanding that you could write stories and create a narrative that you could share with other people, film it, all of that, which obviously is so much about AFI, um, did that start happening at Brandeis? Were you making content?
2: Yeah, I think there was a big change for me uh, somewhere around the end of my junior year when I realized I wanted to make movies. Um I think, first of all, again, historically, that moment in American history in the early 70s was a golden age of cinema for American movies. um, But also, for reasons I have no idea, could not explain, there was a great interest among college students in sort of classical American cinema, movies from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And when I was at Brandeis... In Cambridge, there were two different revival theaters that show different old movies every night of the week. And there at Brandeis, every Thursday night, they would show an old movie. And I basically saw three old movies a week for four years at Brandeis. And only many years later did I realize that my education at Brandeis was actually in old movies. That was what I took away from Brandeis. And that's what turned me into a filmmaker. And I had no idea at the time. I just knew I loved it. I loved those movies and was amazed at the craft of it, the artistry of it, the, the, you know, I, I, you know, I fell in love with the great stars and, and how they did what they did and cinematography, all of it. It was, it was, that was my education. And I, I, had this great interest in um, in everything having to do with sort of the Dark Ages in Europe, Vikings and Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon England, that sort of thing. That that was just something that I'd always loved, probably from Tolkien, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and I actually studied Old English in in college. My major was English, but what I mostly um, studied was Old and Middle English and and you know, the poetry of the time, whether it was Chaucer or whether it was Beowulf or a lot of other Anglo-Saxon poems. And right around the end of junior year, I realized that I was making movies of these stories in my head. And uh, that was the moment. That was the moment. And, and again, looking back, I don't think I understood this at the time, but looking back, I realized that movies for me were a perfect marriage of the verbal and the visual. And, you know, left brain, right brain. And I had started out wanting to be a visual artist and I had become a writer instead. And in some way, movies brought them together. And it was just perfect for me. And when um, you
0: were finally in college, um, socially, did things start to feel more comfortable for you? Or were you still a pretty introverted, shy person?
2: Well, it's interesting. I don't think I was ever introverted or shy I think my life was defined by the attempt to overcome these feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think anyone would have ever looked at me and defined me from the outside as an introvert. Um, I, I was just having an internal experience that was disjointed and, and anxious. Um, but I did everything I could to compensate for that. So, um, I think that was true throughout my whole life. In fact, it's still true in some way that, 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 you know, trying to sort of um, um, connect my inner experience with with my outer experience has always been the challenge. So, um, you know, I was, you know, I wasn't the most social person in the world, but I was certainly not a loner. I was out there. I had friends. I did things. I just paid a price for it every day. That's all. And it's, I think internally, by the, emotionally, internally, yes, emotionally, yeah. right. And so I think by the end of college, I felt a lot more comfortable and I felt a lot more connected. Um, uh, I met my future wife, although we're, we've been divorced for many years, but we were together for 20 years and, and it was, you know, uh, you know, incredibly significant relationship in my life. And I met her when I was a senior in college and we fell in love at the end of that year and, and, a lot of things started to come together for me as a person at that point um, that that helped me sort of move on to the next phase of life.
0: And and so, if that's your first marriage, your second marriage happens at AFI with Ed Zwick, and <laughs> your your creative marriage. How did you guys connect and and begin what, as we said, is is many decades of creating <laughs> incredible stories together?
2: As, as Ed likes to say, he, he, Ed, Ed is always quoting people, and he often gets the quotes wrong or doesn't remember who said it, and I couldn't tell you who said this, but someone once said, I feared you too much to become your enemy, so I became your friend. And I think that was the basis of our friendship, that in some way we looked at each other in this class of whatever it was, 20 or 25 people, and we saw that the other one was the most formidable person there, and we were both drawn and frightened of this other person and um you know didn't necessarily trust each other in the beginning, but you know by midway through the first year at aFI we had basically become best friends and we've been best friends ever since so um it was really about a friendship and I think you know we have over the years influenced each other we have you know, slightly different skill sets. And over the years we've learned the others' skill sets and, um, you know, uh, you know, like people and their dogs come to re- resemble each other. I think that yes, in some totally. way, you know, yes. um, you know, he, he has, Ed has an extraordinary um, um, sort of abstract ability. His ability to understand story, for instance, his ability to understand story structure is better than anyone I've ever known. I used to say you could drop it in the middle of any movie, anywhere in the movie, and within five minutes he could tell you how that movie began and how that movie is going to end. He just had this—he just had this ability to synthesize story based on a small amount of information um, that was just extraordinary. I've, I've still never met anybody like that. And it's taken me many years to be half as good at him as that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And what I had was an ability to, um, to replicate the rhythms of life, the rhythms of how people speak uh, what's going on in their minds, what their experience is, because that's what I had been steeped in my whole life. I could, be in a room and understand that someone was upset and understand that there was some weird thing going on between two people and, and, you know, feel people's anger and, and that ability to be inside the experience of people and inside my own experience is so essential when you're writing drama, because that's what you're trying to get across. So, you know, in a way we were a perfect marriage because he could build the armature and then I could build the texture and the and the dynamics of, you know, what was happening between the people in the moment. Um, and, and I think that's what we each brought to the game. And I think over time, I've learned how to do structure. And over time, he's learned how to do dialogue and learned how to sort of get to the heart of what's happening in a scene. So we, we can now do what the other you know excels at but we we don't have we weren't born with it you know so
0: and when you guys got out of school were you a, were you a partnership already were you going out and sending out scripts together
2: um i kind of it maybe took about 6 months i think basically when you when you get out of film school it's so terrifying to realize that you've just been dropped into 35 feet of water and you have no idea how to swim. It, you know, you're just lost when you get out of film school. And, um, it was especially true in those days because when we were at film school, no one taught us how the business worked. No one taught Mm -hmm. us anything about how movies were made in 1976, which is when we were there. All we learned about was how movies were made in 1930 and 40 and 50 you Know and and it sort of it was a classical film education, and um, and we were taught by people who made movies, you know, years before, and sure. so we had no clue how the business worked, we didn't know how you got an agent, or how studios worked, or who the studio heads were. We were completely like just blind to all of that. So, I think when we got out, we clung together because we were so scared. It's like, what do we do? You know? And, um, and the truth is, our learning continued during that period. We would, you know, this was the time when uh, video cassette recorders were just coming into use and we would rent movies and we would look at them and we would, and we would analyze them because we were, that was our, we were just so passionate about it. So. So um, when I
0: had, um, Alex Ganza on the show, he was saying how he and Howard Gordon were SAT tutors. Uh And one of their students had a father who made television. And Uh sort of their lucky, their first lucky break in terms of getting a job writing on, you know, some pre-existing television show came from some student being like, I don't know, I'll give it to my dad. Like one of these ridiculous moments. And that's Uh 35 you know many many years ago at this point um did you guys uh i mean i assume you all know each other and um maybe started maybe they started a little later than you but did you have some kind of moment like that where someone because you're both boys it sounds like you're out there without familial connections yeah um how what was your first sort of sat prep student, um, or something that sort of opened a door that was closed until that moment, if not for.
2: I, I did have a moment like that when I was still at AFI. And as you would say, it was a classic Hollywood moment. Uh, AFI had a program, still does, called the Women's Directing Workshop. And it was for women who had already sort of made some way in the business in some form or another who wanted to become directors because in those days, it was really hard for a woman to become a director. Sure. It's still hard today, but it was harder then. Um, and uh, a woman named Marilyn Bergman, who was a famous lyricist with her husband, Alan, um, they wrote the the lyrics to um, The Way We Were and, and The Windmills of Your Mind and a lot of very famous Oscar-winning songs. So Marilyn Bergman, who was in many ways, the doyen of Hollywood at that time. She knew everyone, everyone loved her. She was a wonderful woman. She was in the directing workshop. And one of our fellow students who had become my close friend, who was also from Philadelphia, was a young woman named Vicki Zlotnick. Her name is Vicki Mercer today. But in those days, it was Vicki Zlotnick. And and she was our friend. And Vicki had volunteered to help Marilyn on Marilyn's video project because at AFI, everyone helped everyone else. That's how people got crews. It's like students, when you weren't making a film yourself, you helped other people. So Vicky was helping Marilyn and Marilyn really liked her and thought Vicky was this bright young, you know, girl. And, and, um, one day Vicky says to Marilyn, you know, my friend Marshall and I are watching this new show family that's on ABC and we love that show. And it's like, God, it's like, if only we could write for that show. And she wasn't even saying that with any motive other than her wish. She had no idea that Marilyn was then going to say, oh, I know Len Goldberg. He's the executive producer. I'll call him. And the next day, not two days, not three days, the next day, Vicky gets a call, not even from Len Goldberg, but from the people who were actually running the show, Len Goldberg was running several shows. He was a big executive producer. You know, he was Aaron Spelling's partner in those days. He wasn't hands-on running family. Within 24 hours, Marilyn had called Len. Len had called the producers of the show and the producers of the show had called Vicky within 24 hours and said to her, we hear you're a very bright young woman uh, and you have ideas for the show. Why don't you come in? And so Vicky and I, uh, you know, came up with three terrible ideas for the show. And we went in and had a meeting, which, you know, of course, we were unbelievably anxious. They didn't like any of them. But while we were there, we started to talk about other ideas, and we came up with an idea in the room that they hired us to write. And that was my first job in Hollywood. And it came because my friend Vicky got to know Marilyn Bergman, who was, you know, who knew everybody in Hollywood. So... When you-
0: that's so crazy and and uh was Vicki do you consider were you hired as a writing team at the time yes, were you as okay. a team yes yeah. so she was your very first writing partner professionally
2: yes. yes that's right yeah
0: um I love that show uh listeners Matthew Broderick's dad was on that show <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly it was um, so nice to me by the way he was just a great guy
0: yeah how long Jim were you Broderick. on that show
2: Well, here's the thing. The funny thing was, I wrote two episodes for them. Um, Then we got out of AFI, and by a completely independent route, Ed got a job writing for them as well. I don't even remember how it happened with him, but it had nothing to do with me or Vicky or anything like that. He got a job writing for them, and they actually liked his writing more than mine, and they hired him as a story editor. So he, of course, hired me to write more. At that point, Vicky had decided to leave the business, and she went to medical school and has since become a pediatrician. So um, <laughs> she, she's she's actually had a, a much she's more a satisfying. life. Yeah, she's had a much more satisfying yes. life as a pediatrician, she's- you know. Wow. But but um, and she's still our friend today. Um, and and she acts as a medical advisor on our shows when we need one. So um, you know, Amazing. it's sort of that's wonderful. Um but at any anyway, Ed was hired. He hired me, and then he was hired to produce the show in its next season, and he hired me as a director. And that was my first job as a director because Ed gave me the job. So I got to know all of those actors and they were all incredibly kind to me. Uh they were just they were just great. Seda Thompson, who scared the shit out of me because she was so scary on the show. You know yeah. um,
0: Stern, serious. Uh, yes.
2: Stern and serious and, yes. and she you know my it's like they showed me my schedule during prep and i saw that the first day of shooting was on location at a school and it was just sada cuz she you know she was going to meet like a guest star or something like that so it's like my first experience directing was going to be with sada and nobody else on the cast and i was just terrified just terrified like oh my god she's going to eat me alive
0: you're being sent to the principal's office
2: yeah exactly and we arrived that day And she comes and she greets me and she has this look of utter vulnerability on her face. And she goes, well, where do I go? Which way do I come in? What should I do? And it was the sweetest thing anyone could have ever done. She just put herself in my hands. And I said, well, why don't you come in this door and go over there? And she goes, oh, thank you. And it was like she made my life at that moment. If actors only knew the power they have. She literally made my life at that moment. It's it's like she, you know, it was an extraordinary gesture on her part, and and it was acting. It was right. it, she knew I was a first time she director. Knew how to
0: walk in the door? She didn't need you to she, show her. How she to didn't do need it. me.
2: No, right, right. She was she was she was saying, "I trust you," and it was a lovely thing to do.
0: That is incredible. Yeah. Um, You know, it's funny because I have so many friends who who come on uh, to direct television shows, almost like guest stars, right? They're not doing many of them. They're doing these one-offs and, yeah. and to have actors that make them feel that they are useful yeah. um, in terms of the creative process is not always the case. So yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that influenced you in so many ways yeah. uh, in terms yeah. of a how you treat directors when they come on your sets, when yeah. when you're in, uh, on all levels. I, yeah. I want to talk about, um, I have nowhere to go, but that is probably not true for you.
2: Um,
0: yes, I, and- I have
2: about like 10 or 15 more minutes, if that's okay. okay. Well,
0: so yeah. far we have you. Um, we got to the, you know. I mean, we, got we haven't made very much
2: headway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know what? How how one starts is, um, I think for everyone listening, how do yeah. you start is always yeah. the hardest part. Because once yeah. things are rolling... Um, So let's move to, I know, you know, anyone who looks on IMDb or Googles you, the number of films you've written, produced, directed, um, and television shows, your resume is really astonishingly inspirational and aspirational for us mere mortals. But I do want, because 30-something was so back in the news again, because of this new show, which never happens. It's the kind of thing people dream of, but really (laughs) getting enough people together from the original is always impossible.
1: Um, Uh
0: I just want to talk a little bit about 30 something because you have done so many things, but I'm sure that's something people often want to talk to you about because other than the big chill in my memory from sort of that idea of baby boomer content, it really was the first thing that took people who were who were living really authentic lives with their chosen family. It sort of was the dream of what adult life could be. Yes. With all of its imperfections.
2: Yes, right.
0: Um, and did you live a life like that by the time you were working on that show? did you feel like you had created that for yourself and then could take that and somehow figure out with Ed how to reproduce it for television?
2: No. <laughs> okay. No, here's he the had funny no thing. no friends. <laughs> no, no. Here's the, here's the funny thing. I, I can answer that. <laughs> After the second episode, my brother called me from Boston and said, do your friends just come into your house all the time like that? I said, are you fucking kidding me? Of course not. <laughs>
0: Okay. It's a
2: fantasy. (laughs) No, the thing is, you know, in retrospect, we came to understand that everything that succeeds has some form of wish fulfillment in it. It can be all different kinds of wish fulfillment. I mean, a a horror movie has its own kind of wish fulfillment, but the wish fulfillment in 30-something was exactly what you just described, was that people could create a kind of second family with their friends when they're far away from their real families and 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 have this kind of warmth and support from each other and that was a wish and yes we all we had very close friends and certainly Ed and I were close friends but you know we didn't have the life that we did on the show that we described on the show and I think most of what you see on the show is because how else do you have scenes happen unless people are together with each other. Do you know what I mean? So the idea of people dropping into each other's houses all the time was really, in some sense, a convenience so that we could have them interact.
0: Right, and, and because it, it wasn't purely a workplace, right? Like the, there wasn't yeah, one set where everyone came right. in and out of. So exactly right. Yes. When talk to me a little bit about the casting process because the chemistry between your cast was obviously extraordinary in how it came through the TV screen into our homes. Yeah. How, I mean, can you just talk a little bit, what, were there other people who might've originally been cast and it didn't work out or were these always the people you wanted? Was it a traditional auditioning process?
2: Um, it was, first of all, uh, thank you for bringing that up and for saying those nice things I think Ed and I have always taken casting incredibly seriously. And we're very proud of the people that we've cast in our shows and our movies. Um, We gave Brad Pitt one of his first jobs on 30 something, Mm -hmm. you know, Claire Danes. I mean, there've been many, many people that we've, Evan, Rachel Wood, you know, um, and the way we've done it basically is just by working really, really hard and looking everywhere and thinking it through in ways that that sort of don't leave any stone unturned. In other words, imagining this person through all the scenes, you know, is this the right person or not? um, It's painstaking. And the process of casting 30-something was painstaking. And it also means giving up some of your preconceived notions. I mean, for instance, our model for Michael Stedman in those days was Peter Riegert who was having some success as a movie star in those days, and we we didn't think he was going to do our show, but we were imagining a guy who's not great looking, but who's really smart and really verbal and represents a kind of intelligent, ironic, you know, um, at times melancholy, but also funny point of view on the world. And we always thought that Michael Sidman was not great looking. And, in walks Ken Olin, who's as great looking as you could possibly be. And he just does it better than anybody else. And we're going, we can't cast Ken Olin. He's too good looking. Ken Olin would never be this guy. And and we spent like a week going back and forth. Like, how can we cast somebody as good looking as Ken Olin to play Michael Stedman? And we finally said, oh, forget it. It's like, he's the best. Just cast the best. And so we went with him. Thank God. Do you know what yes. I mean? But it was yes. not an easy choice because we couldn't at first imagine somebody that good looking having that point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was our willingness to bend our own concept to see or to, 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 to go with the person who did the best, you know.
0: When Patricia Wedding comes in, assuming yes. she auditioned and wasn't an offer, did you know they were married?
2: Oh yeah. I, the funny thing is that, that, um, My wife at the time and I had become friends with Ken and Patty through nursery school. We both had kids the same age who had become friends in nursery school. And so we had become friends with Ken and Patty before we even did the show. And so there was actually this awkward moment when it was like, oh, okay, Ken and Patty are going to come in and read. Like, oh, what if we don't cast them? I mean, that was actually rather embarrassing on both sides in, in advance. Like what's going to happen here. This the, the, like the possibility for this going bad is very large. And um, so that put even more on it. When Ken comes in and reads great and we're sitting there going, we really don't want to cast him because he's too good looking. And how do you even say that to someone, you know what I mean? You know, so then Patty comes in at the same time to read for hope. <laughs> oh, and,
1: really?
2: and yes. And, Ed and I are sitting there going, okay, this woman is an unbelievable actress. She's incredible, but she's not Hope. She just isn't Hope. You know, you you know, there are very few people in this world, um, you know, maybe Meryl Streep, um, you know, maybe one or two other people who can actually transcend their own persona and actually be someone else. Most actors just can't do that. You know what I mean? They can have a wide range, but they can't just be someone that they're not. Right. And- Patty just wasn't home, you know? And we said, you know, um, but she could be Nancy. And the problem is in the pilot of 30-something, Nancy literally has three lines. And we had to go to Patty and say, look, we want to cast you. We think you're amazing, but we want you to play Nancy. And she's going, but Nancy's a nothing part. And we're saying, no, that's not true. She's just a nothing part in the pilot. Nancy's going to be just as important as anybody else in this. We just can't do justice to everybody in the pilot. You have right. to trust us. And right. she was willing to trust us. Um, was Nancy
0: you know, so. a series regular in the pilot?
2: Yes. she Yes. We knew she was going to be a series regular. Right. It's just that we did not have room to do everybody's story sure. in, the, in the pilot. That's all. It was mostly about Michael and Hope. So, and a little bit about, you know, Michael and Elliot, because we wanted to establish that relationship. But Nancy was the one who got shorted in the pilot. And she had to really go on faith that we meant it that, you know, her part was going to be important as anybody else's. And of course it was, and she's the one who won Emmys. And, you know, it all worked out great, but she had to go on faith, um, that, that, that Nancy was going to be a real character.
0: You're like, Nancy, we're going to give you uh, a separation and cancer. So.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But by by the way, (laughs) it's going to be great. (laughs) You have to understand how actors' minds work. This is, this is true. In, at the end of the second season, and um, um, Patty was very upset with us in the second season of 30 something because we hadn't given her much to do because we had tried a storyline and it didn't work. And so she was right. We had kind of just messed up with her character and she came in and let us know how upset she was at the end of the second season. And we were at that moment trying to figure out who we were going to give cancer to among <laughs> among the cast because we had known by the way we had known from day one that one of them was going to get sick that was just something we wanted to do in the show but we didn't know which one was going to get sick and we were like wait well what if we do gary what if we do this you know we we literally went through each person what if we give them cancer and it was this ghoulish strange enterprise sort of deciding who's going to get sick um but you have to understand from an actor's standpoint there's nothing better than getting cancer I mean, it's a gold mine. Okay. Right. So to the actors, it was a prize. And it's very hard for people Literally. On the outside to understand that, you know. Right. And, it's and an so, epic. And, and, and yes. And so, and so we admit it. We gave Nancy cancer because we fucked up with Patty in the second season and we owed her. It was that simple. And, <laughs> and you know, and it's like, and
0: <laughs> Thank it's just.
2: You? She got the prize and she ran with it, you know, and God bless her. And she did great. And it was an amazing storyline for the show. And, you know, and, and, oh my God, it resonated with the audience so strongly and we were so glad we did it. But, you know, if she hadn't yelled at us, I don't know, maybe we would have decided Gary got cancer. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, you gave Gary something else.
2: (laughs) Yes. Which by the way, also was in the plan from day one. And that, that was... That was in the plan for Gary from day one, yes. Um, How many yeah. seasons were there of that show? Four seasons.
0: So you had sort of, when first kind of thinking about and distilling sort of what the different storylines would be, you knew well, someone would get cancer, you knew one of them would would pass, you kind of knew that from day one.
2: We knew four things from day one. We knew somebody would die Somebody would get sick. And by the way, we didn't know if the person who got sick would die or not. That might be the person who died. That was a whole other question we went through. We knew they would lose their business. And we knew that Michael and Elliot would get divorced. Interestingly, we changed our minds and had them get back together. But in the beginning, we thought they were going to get divorced. So Mm -hmm. even that changed. But we we you said Michael and Elliot.
0: You don't mean his business partners. You mean Nancy and Elliot.
2: I'm sorry. Forgive me, Nancy. No, Elliot. no, but yes, but right, there yeah, were yes. there was
0: a lot of tension between Michael and Elliot too. So yes, it could have yes. been that their you know right. their friendship right. and and work life can sustain itself. You also right. did things. I mean, I've said it before. I got to be on one of those episodes. It was when Peter Horton was teaching about Emily Dickinson, and Richard Kramer actually directed it, and it was like. <laughs> You know, in my early twenties, a, a great bucket list moment already fulfilled. When you're on the show that you love, it, it your little oh. head explodes at that oh. age. And that's and, so cool. I didn't yeah, know that. Richard ended up being, you know, a wonderful mentor to me. Peter Horton, a doll. Yeah. Um, did he? So did he know that from the beginning that no. of that season that that's how the season was going to end?
2: No, he didn't know. In fact, uh, you know what? I think I misspoke. I think. We had an idea that Gary might die, but we, but if someone was going to die from cancer, then, then Gary wouldn't die. In other words, we never really we didn't discuss that with Horton until the final season and And we did it before the season began. Uh, we asked him to come in for a meeting and and, and we sat down, and uh, we just said, "How would you like to die?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and so he, he did of, not say like I love this, but I want to pursue a directing career more exclusively. How can we do this elegantly? He had no idea this was coming.
2: No, interestingly, in the beginning, that's what he said. In other words, in the beginning he said, I don't know if I want to do the show. I really want to be a director. And right. we said to him, because he was a friend, by the way, he was another the of, of all the cast, we were friends with 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 Canon Patty and Peter Horton beforehand um in fact we were close friends both of us were close friends with peter beforehand and uh we said to peter look you'll direct on the show we promise you you'll direct multiple times each season on the show please come and do this and he said Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know i guess i'll do it and then of course he fell in love with it and he loved being on the show and he loved directing the show so by the time the fourth season came around it was actually a delicate conversation do you want to die whereas in the beginning he wasn't sure he even wanted to be there and what did he say he said, well, he laughed. He burst out <laughs> laughing. And and he said, Yeah, okay, I'll do it. You know. Um and, He's so and, chill. Well, he got it. He got the power of what it would mean. Because remember, in those days nobody died on right. shows. And right. and um so he was he was cool about it. I mean, it was freaky for everybody. Um mm-hmm. and um
0: that table read must still be a memory yeah, that you was-
2: have. Yeah. It was, it was pretty heavy. The whole thing was pretty heavy. Everyone was very kind of upset by it. Um, By the way, just as an aside um, the day after that episode aired, I called Horton and I said to him, what's the reaction like? How, how how are people acting toward you? He said, I am not going to tell you that almost everyone stops me on the street because in fact, everyone stops me on the street. I cannot walk down the street. Every single person is coming up to me and saying, I can't believe you died. I can't believe you died. I can't believe you died. That was, that was the reaction. I can
0: imagine.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Because by
0: that point, he was, Gary was everyone's brother, you know, and, and everyone wanted good things for him. And everyone yeah. wanted him and you know Melanie Mayron to make up. Like there was yeah. unfinished business. And so we're right. her in the story, right? That right. idea of like not getting right. what if you don't get to say, I'm sorry?
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Like
0: that's yeah. real life too. Yeah. Um, did you did you feel like you I mean, was anyone already famous before you cast them?
2: Well, I think Ken had Ken had been on Hill Street Blues, and he had been on some other show, and I think people knew who Ken was. Um, I think most of the other people were pretty much unknown. People knew who Peter was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had done movies, right? Um, and he'd, he'd, be those, he'd been and married was, to Michelle
0: Pfeiffer, and that was Michelle, yeah.
2: And so I think he probably had the largest profile coming into it.
0: So you didn't have to fight the network to hire these people. Was it the same way back then, where so many people weighed in? on who got cast
2: yeah but you have to understand this was a this was a big thing we this was very defining of our career um we we had done a tv movie before this called special bulletin um i won't go a whole long story about it it was about a it was about an incident of nuclear terrorism in south carolina but the point is it was done as if it was a live news broadcast and it caused a big Sort of brouhaha in the network. They almost didn't air it, and it was in the news before it was even on the air. And and because they were afraid
0: people would they, f- people were, like they Orson Welles, like exactly, they'd be were afraid People
2: would believe it was actually happening, uh-huh. and, they, and they had these disclaimers at the bottom. But the point is, Ed and I got a reputation from that that you leave those guys alone. You don't tell them what to do. We were kind of, we, we were we oh, were very yeah. ferocious, right. and right. and and when we made the deal to to, to 30-something, we actually didn't even want to do a television show. I mean, this sounds like a joke now, but it's really true. We wanted to make movies. And so we just kind of were not afraid to push the envelope with the people running the network and the studio to say, we don't care what you say. We're not going to do what you say. We're not going to take your notes. And this happened to be a moment in television history when... Um, Writer producers were being given a kind of creative freedom they had never been given before. It started with Botchko with with um, Hill Street Blues. Um, Brandon Stoddard was was head of programming at ABC. He was a very enlightened guy, and he was willing to let us follow our own, you know, impulses. And and I remember, you know, when we turned in the first episode after the pilot of Thirty Something, Brandon called me in. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this episode. It's very dark. He said, and I mean that figuratively and literally figuratively, it's very depressing. And literally I can't even see the people. It's so dark. And I said to Brandon, you know, you're right. It is. It's kind of dark. And he said, well, are you going to, you want to do something about it? I said, no, not really. He said, okay, I'm just telling you what I think. And that defined our relationship. And, And you know, they never gave us notes. They, we just did our thing, you know, so, and, and in the casting, by the way, in those days, you were supposed to bring them two choices. And in most of these, uh, in most of these cases, we, we only brought them the people we wanted. We didn't bring two choices. Um, you know, one of the few characters we brought two choices for was the character of Melissa. Uh, um, we brought Melanie Mayron and Annette Benning, And, um, <laughs> Amazingly, both Ed and I forgot that we brought Annette Benning into the network, and the network chose um, Melanie Mayron. May- May- and we both had the experience years later, like probably fifteen years later, of being introduced to Annette Benning and saying, "Hey, how are you?" And she says, "Oh, we've met before." And we kind of look at her, and she told us the whole story, and yeah. we just burst out laughing because it's just you know. The thing is, the funny thing is about actors is when you see an actor on the screen, you think you know them already anyway. You may forget that you actually met them in person right. because you already know them, you know. Right. Right. So we had both forgotten that we had brought Annette Benning into the network. Um, but too she bad, did not forget. Too
0: bad it did <laughs> not work out for Annette.
2: Well, by the way, when, when Annette said to him, you know, and 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 you cast Melanie Mayron. Ed was quick enough to say back to her, and you've never thanked us. Because <laughs> she All went right. on to have a very nice movie exactly. career after that. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> so how did you, was the decision in terms of, because Tim Busfield told me a lot about sort of the the, a really nice thumbnail sketch of what 30-something else looks like. And, God willing, in the future, whether it's in six months or a year, maybe it can still happen if all the pieces of your puzzle are still together in the right way. Hope, but hope so, how, yes. Yes, I know. Well, that's just true for everything right now. Um, yeah. How did you decide, are, are the original cast members coming back the only ones who were available who wanted to who could make a deal sort of how did or was that what you wrote and you went out to them after you knew what it want you wanted it to be
2: well we hadn't written it yet but we we went to the network and said we want them all back and uh we want them all back and we want these new people and we went to all the actors and they all said they want to come back i mean the only issue was ken olin who has issue who has contractual issues with this is us, but he very much wanted to come back. And we knew we just had to work around his schedule on this is us. That's all. Cause he's the producing director on that sure. show. He's an executive producer. Yeah. So, and directs a lot of their episodes. So, um, but they all wanted to come back. So, you know, look, there was a very protracted deal making process as there always is in Hollywood. Um, but the deals were made and then we were able to cast uh, the younger people and then we were off and running until there was a pandemic.
0: So you have the entire original cast?
2: Yes, we have the entire uh, song's original cast.
0: Gary, yes. unless he comes back in.
2: By the, way, by the way, I need to give a shout out to Horton because this probably wouldn't have happened without Horton basically yelling at us every six months for the last three years, you've got to redo the show, you've got to redo the show. and And we kept saying to him, why do you care? You can't be in it. He said, I don't care. I just think you need to bring it back. Wow. And he was, he played a very important role, even during the negotiations sort of as a back channel with the actors. And he was amazing, just amazing. Hmm. Um, and, you know, if we could figure out some way to bring him back, I don't know. I don't want to say how, but you know, it's like, we love him. And, you know, I, I don't want to say hundred percent he's you know not a part of it but he's he's been a big behind the scenes big important part of this wow. just even the fact that That's incredible. Yeah. Well
0: that really speaks to the family that you created and what an extraordinary thing all those years later. So yeah. thank you for that and all of the incredible hours of entertainment and distraction you know in order to kind of get ready for this, I ended up watching once and again, again, and seeing Young Claire Danes, all of yeah. the people that you helped um, discover, who have gone on to just be extraordinary actors and directors, and all the people. So I'm going to oh. let you go. Well, um, thank
2: you so much, Marshall. It's been a great how question.
0: lovely really of you to spend it. this time. Yes, thank you of for course. being and and until next time.
2: Okay. Thanks. All right. Be well. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye.
0: Hey, before I sign off, I just want to tell you guys one more thing. I have a new podcast out. It's called And the Award Goes To, and you can find it on the Broadway Podcast Network or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. It is an incredible journey that I take with 10 Tony winners where together we listen to their speech that they made the night they won, and then they just take me through their entire Tony experience, how the role came into their lives, what the role meant to them, what the challenges were, how it felt to be nominated and more unbelievable, how it felt to win, and then what it is to wake up the next day after your lifelong dream has happened. Then what do you do? This 10-part limited series is something that started as a love letter to the Tonys when they were canceled this year and just turned into this whole other adventure. I'm so grateful to my guests, all of whom you love as much as I do. So check out, and the award goes to, you're really going to enjoy it. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are Little Known Facts that now. You know. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.